Hey everyone, Eric Torenberg here. We just launched a new show, the Leader Series Podcast, with General Assembly co-founder and thesis-driven editor, Brad Hargreaves. Thesis Driven is the top newsletter publication for real estate changemakers, and the first season of the podcast builds on top of that, with 12 interviews with the leading voices at the intersection of real estate, cities, innovation, and technology. We'll cover how technology is going to shape real estate investing over the coming years, what new sectors and consumer preferences changes mean for real estate development, and how entrepreneurs might be able to play to these trends. The first episode is out now. Search Thesis Driven on any podcast app today or visit the link in the description. Welcome to The Riff where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. So Munger tragically passed away at a uh, hundred uh, recently and um, you, uh, you wrote some uh, reflections and I know you've been thinking about um, him for, for quite a bit. So why don't you, uh, why don't you share? What, uh, what, what's on your mind as a Munger? Yeah, yeah. So like a lot of people, I was uh, very much influenced by Munger's writing and his investment track record and um, just, you know, general general attitude towards life. Like, I feel like if um, if you're 99 years old and you're, uh, you know, worth worth a billion dollars and working, you know, worth those of dollars and you're working with people you really, really like, a company that people love and um you also get to, um, I guess, a hobby, you know, defend your architectural choices and you're on a media, like he was, he seemed to be, um, he seemed to have died during a media tour because um, Portfolio Almanac was being republished and so he was giving more podcast interviews than, um, than there were more interviews generally than he'd been giving for a long time. Um, so I think like someone, someone who's able to structure their life so that the things that they do are still things they can do at the age of 99 and, um, that uh, even the even the hobbies and charitable stuff is still showcases some idiosyncrasy. Like that's that's very much worth emulating. I think if you if you compare um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's careers, and it's you know hard to hard to separate the two um, since they've been they've, they've been working together for so long and um, had had this mutual um, influence on one another. I think one of the things that stands out is the more you read about Buffett and his process, the more he's just someone who is absolutely obsessed with finance. And um, if you read biographies of him, it talks about how before he was into the stock market, he was memorizing the population of every city in the U.S. and memorizing it, you know, memorizing state populations by decade and just had um, a mind that was very attracted towards organized facts, especially numbers. And if you have a fixation like that and you can apply it to financial markets, you can make a ton of money. But it's also something that's really hard to emulate because it's like step. So Buffett, sometimes people would ask for advice and you'd say, well, when I started, I just read the Moody's manuals. And those apparently still exist in some form. I think it's called Emergent now, but you can buy this giant book and it's just financials on like historical financials on every tiny obscure company that is theoretically public, but almost never trades. Um, and so he would say just he he read through the manuals, found the cheap stocks, bought them, and the rest is history. And um, people would ask him for more advice than that. He'd say, well, you you start with the A's. Like, there's nothing else to do other than just do the work. And so it seems like step zero for copying Buffett is um, 
be the kind of person for whom spending a very long workday just reading financial statements is actually more fun than the alternative. And then, you know, after step zero is done, then steps one through N are pretty straightforward. And Munger just seemed like closer to a regular person who was, you know, unusually smart and um, unusually focused on cultivating wisdom, but was, um, not not that many not as many standard deviations away from the norm behaviorally so um and munger he talks in interviews about how important it was for him to basically get enough money to be a capitalist like he he was working as a lawyer didn't like billing by the hour hated sending invoices thought it was undignified etc and decided that he was going to make his first million dollars this is when million dollars really meant something but basically the, the amount of money he was trying to make was enough that he could make investments, they would grow, he would live off of his investment income, and that would that would define where he was in his life. And I think that is that is an aim that um, is certainly non-trivial to achieve, but I think there are a lot of people out there who, if they ran the numbers on what is a realistic amount of income to get and what can I actually do that produces a, a decent return and what what can I do that is closer to a passive invest, maybe passive investments actively managed in the sense of you're spending a lot of time and effort finding places where you can put money into something and then just ignore it indefinitely. And when you check back in five years, the the value of that investment has gone way up and it's also produced cash flow in the interim. Um, that seems more achievable. Munger, he, he did some of that early, some of that early investing in real estate. And um, it was you know, a surprising number of people, um, or I guess not, not insane number of people, but like investing in California real estate in the mid 20th century was just a really, really good way to start with not very much money and end up with a whole lot. Um, this is also like Schwarzenegger made his first money before he was a movie star. He was a real estate guy and actually um, says he made his first million in real estate. So he, he and Munger both have, uh, We'll have shared life advice of whatever you get famous for, start out by developing apartment buildings in California. Um, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that still works today. Uh, seems like the cap rates uh, cap rates are different. Access to credit is different. Uh, a lot of people have figured out that California is a nice place to live some of the time. So um, maybe not as straightforward, but um, yeah, I think I, part of what was nice about Munger is that he's he was able to um, reflect a lot on his choices and what drove them. And I think was able to reflect at different levels of abstraction than than a lot of other people. So he talks about um, how he's he's trying to know a little more than he knew the day before um, and that he's constantly reading and constantly ingesting information. And I think that is a more common tendency than the tendency to want to memorize a long column of numbers and be just a, a really fast lookup table for arbitrary facts. Um, but you think about how you would actually turn that tendency into making money. Um, I think there there's like a set of j very specialized jobs, like you could be a lawyer in some esoteric topic where you you happen to know the case law better than anybody else, or you know you're a tax person, you know the tax code backwards and forwards. But um, of the areas where you can actually read genuinely interesting things, but where continuously accumulating knowledge is actually adding to your ability to earn income investing is is pretty hard to beat like you can just spend a lot of time reading about different companies and often if you if you read about companies in different industries um like what i found is that when i start looking at a new industry at first a lot of stuff doesn't make sense and i ask myself like should i just start a company that is in this industry but does x instead of y and then i read more and you know i find out about the various times people have tried to do x instead of y and why it didn't work and sometimes it's for dumb reasons sometimes it's for very sensible reasons but over time, you just develop this sense of what are the what are the contours of this industry 
and how much uh, and how does it reflect real world limitations? How much does it reflect the limitations of human behavior and uh, things like agency costs and just um, asymmetric information generally? And over time, that just gives you this nice, comprehend like fairly comprehensive model of a, a subset of human behavior. So you're not you're not going to learn that much about the nature of the good life or like how to treat people one on one or what does it mean to be a good parent or what does it mean to be a good child or something like you're not you're not going to learn that from reading lots of 10ks and talking to lots of other investors. But you will learn a lot about like what does it mean to provide good value for the money? What does it mean to be a prudent steward of somebody else's capital? And um, what is the difference between a good business and a bad business? Like that stuff you do pick up over time. And that does end up sort of speaking to the human condition. Like when you read Munger's essays, he toggles back and forth between saying, hey, Hershey's has really good margins because they have pricing power and distribution. And then talking about how, well, would you save five cents to put some unfamiliar brand in your mouth? Like your mouth is a, a very private place. Like, why would you do that? So he toggles back to these these more, um, more broadly applicable ideas about the human condition. And so I think Munger, um, I forget if he coined the term or was the first person to start talking talking about investing as the last liberal art, but it is it definitely counts as a liberal art, and he, he really exemplified that. So I think the, the other thing to think about with Munger is that um, it's hard to think of a better legacy. Like, he has lots of fans. They quote lots of things that he said. They try to emulate things that he did, and there's still lots of room for lots of other proto-Mungers out there. So, um, and it's hard to, like, you can really measure someone's success by their their, like, literal descendants and then their intellectual descendants, and he really did well on both measures. Hard to beat. Yeah, it's interesting. One comment on personality. I've had this idea that, or this hypothesis that if you're a very successful public figure on a skills perspective, you want your skills to be sort of like so different from the normal person, kind of like the Warren Buffett, you know, reading the, the all these 10Ks, et cetera, or Kobe Bryant, you know, studying game tape at kind of religious level, but also having your personality or ideally be somewhat relatable. Um, you know, the Warren Buffett sort of Midwest, uh, you know, sim simple guy or you know, Elon also has this dichotomy where on a skills perspective, you, he's so far ahead of the game that you don't really compare yourself to him. Um, and so you don't feel jealous of him. Of him. Um, and also uh, personality wise, he's just a troll like us, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a certain person who connects with that. And so, whereas the the negative spot is to not have your skills be that differentiated where people are like, how did that person get so successful? They're kind of just like me. Um, maybe they're just, they got lucky or they're just a good marketer and the, the market is, you know, reputation market is inefficient or something. Um, or that their personality is too different. They're like aloof or where they, they can't, people can't really relate to them. Um, anyway, that's just kind of a, a hypothesis of broad, uh, you know, of likability for, for public uh, successful people. I think that's true. I think that one way to look at it is that there is this counter signaling thing going on where if your your marketing is not great and your production values are subpar, that um, the more popular you are, the more that is actually a really strong signal that you've got something going for you. Whereas if it's really clear that every thumbnail has been A/B tested twenty times over, and you know you you look perfect, and you've been like any any physical flaws you have, have been photoshopped out of any picture that anyone's ever seen of you, etc. The fact that you're popular is just a weaker signal. Like there are many, many plausible reasons and people will kind of look like people love to hate on broadly popular things. I think most most broadly popular things are probably slightly, slightly underrated by the median person who vocalizes an opinion about them because there's just there's no alpha in saying Chipotle is like 
a pretty decent burrito, very, very reliable and decent value for the money you get, you get slightly more than what you're paying for. Like there's no alpha there. There's no alpha in saying like the Beatles actually wrote some really catchy songs and uh, really had a big influence on music and their productivity is amazing. Um, there's a, there's a lot more alpha in, um, in complaining about those things. So you get, you get more of those complaints. So yeah, I think the, the counter signaling thing is, um, is definitely one one piece of what's going on there. And the other one is, um, I I don't know how universal this is, but I noticed that my life started getting a lot better when I tried to optimize for having really good answers to the hard questions. And that like you can, if you try, like let, let's say you're presenting some idea to some group of people and it's kind of out there idea. Like one thing to do is you try to line up all the best arguments and you try to state them very clearly you have the supporting evidence etc and you just you know blast out everything you've got in that in that one presentation and that's that can sometimes work but um it also means like if you've given people every good answer then the peak of your credibility is the moment you say all right i'm gonna open things up for questions and then the first good question you get is something that if you had thought of it you would have covered it but you didn't cover it so it weakens your argument somewhat and I think that if you sort of prepare for your one hour presentation by doing a five hour presentation and then cutting it down such that you actually have good answers to all the side questions and you have like an appendix in your head of here are the issues I couldn't get to, but here's why they either actually bolster my argument or don't really matter that much. And if you're, you know, and if you do that, then you're able to actually include more caveats in what you're saying. And you're able to talk about more criticisms and say like, this one is weak for this reason. This one is actually a legitimate criticism. So, you know, I can't say I'm hundred percent right, but I think I'm 85% right. And people would like the natural guess would be like 20% right, et cetera. So you get better calibrated and um, the, the Q and A is actually a chance to show that you you really did your homework. And if you get a if you have over prepared to that degree, and then you get a hard question, it's actually a really high value question. Like it's not only something that you um, something that changes your argument, but it also should affect your process. So um, I see this, um, you know, in in a couple different contexts. Like when people are writing a post or doing an investment pitch or something like that, um, whether it's for a public company or for a venture investment, like it's always better if they have the right have the caveats up front or um, have really really good answers to the the obvious questions, and um, it helps people really get to the crux of an issue too. Because sometimes sometimes there is just you know there are, there are parts of this that are inarguable, and then there are parts of it where it's actually a judgment call. Or it's actually a question of relative priorities. And um, if you can if you can identify the crux of the argument, like the whole the whole purpose of the financial markets, investment, et cetera, is coordinating human behavior, getting us to work together on things that any one person would not be able to accomplish on their own. And so if you can identify those those cruxes to arguments, then you at least get all the people who are pretty aligned with you in terms of personality and priorities on your side. And then the other people you don't waste your time arguing with. And Munger did a lot of this. Like he he does talk a lot about um parts of the financial markets that are not great and um and ways that people are really aggressive in the pursuit of fees and ways that they try to build these conflicts of interest so that they can exploit them later on. And um Certainly when he's when he says things like that, like when he when he talks about investment bankers, the investment bankers do not really feel that flattered. And um I think part of his goal is that uh he doesn't have time to engage with everybody. And so if he loses like the five percent of investment bankers who he would really get along with, but gets the ninety-five percent of um business, like mid-sized business owners who he really wants to talk to, then um 
then that's probably a win for him. And and those those unusual bankers will be able to find him anyway. Like there's there are bankers who work with Berkshire Hathaway. They've worked with them for a long time, and in part it's because they're they're able to make the case that they are they're the good ones. They're not like those other bankers. Yeah, that um that that, that that's well articulated. The um one critique that someone like Mark Andreessen would have of Berkshire Hathaway is that, and others have it too, is that they bet against the future, right? They they bet against startups disrupting their, their massive uh, in, in, in incumbents. Um, you know they they are famous for, for they do, um, and I think that that's that's an important part of the model. Like there, are, I, I would say that there's like a division of labor in the financial system where you have some people who are actually focused on um, on the explore side, some people who are focused on the exploit side, and the nice thing is these actually subsidize each other. So. When someone creates a new business, it's not something that Berkshire Hathaway or that a classic value investor or a growth at a reasonable price investor, it's not something they can touch for a long, long time. It just doesn't fit their analytical framework. But once it does get big enough and stable enough that they can analyze it and they can fit it into their frameworks for here's how a large company can produce a return on capital that's greater than its cost of capital. Here's how they can return capital to shareholders and so on. Like once that happens, they bid it up. And so what they end up doing is actually providing good exits to the growth-focused investors because the the growth-focused investors do actually need to leave when they start thinking of the company as an annuity that is going to print 3% more free cash flow every year for the foreseeable future. Like they, they shouldn't be involved. Like A16Z should own nothing that fits that profile. They should never, never touch it. They shouldn't even really think about it. But if they do their job right, they eventually create companies that become these huge, steady growth businesses that just like they've solved the problem they set out to solve. They have met the need that the market had when they were started. And there's like the, the company's choice at that point is either A, do something else or B, get really, really good and get increasingly good at whatever it is that they currently do. And the companies that end up in the Berkshire um, public like public equities portfolio and the companies, certainly companies that end up as um, fully owned subsidiaries, they definitely fit that framework of they're getting continuously better at what they do, but what they do is something they've been doing for a pretty long time and have gotten pretty good at. So um, I think it's, it, it like, I think it would be better for someone like Andreessen to be kind of bored of uh bored of what Munger is talking about than to be opposed to it because like a lot of the world just needs needs some level of stability and maybe we actually don't want some of these things to be getting that much better like i i feel like if we lived in a world where coca-cola unit volume was growing 20 percent annualized at at its current size like that's actually a much worse world like that's a world where coca-cola has learned how to hack our rewards functions in some new and unprecedented and kind of creepy way and um it's probably a world it's definitely a world that's that's getting more obese and more diabetic by the year and getting that way at a faster and faster pace it's probably a world where the ads have somehow gotten really really good at actually altering your behavior such that like if you go out in public you have to shield your eyes lest you accidentally see one of these hyper persuasive coca-cola ads so like um, we probably don't want that world. And even for some of the more prosaic stuff that Berkshire owns, like they're they're big in railroads and the railroads industry is, um, it's an interesting industry because it was this great source of um, mostly illegitimate wealth creation in the late 20th or in the late 19th century. It was like 90% of US stock market, um, like 90% of US market cap around the turn of the 20th century. And then went through uh, multi, like 
most of a century period of just really, really bad economics. Like they were, they were regulated. Um, they had really, really powerful unions. The managers were just not very good and trucking was taking share. So um, anytime you have a fixed cost business where one of the costs is going up and you can't really control it, so labor, and then your demand for the end product is going down because there's a better substitute for some use cases, like it's going to be bad. And it was bad for an astonishingly long time and then eventually turned around. And um, it turns out that for some categories of goods where you need to ship them over land and you know roughly what demand will be and they're pretty bulky and pretty heavy, you just can't beat the cost structure of a railroad. And once that became apparent and once better managers, like once managers started coming in and actually thinking about how do we play to the advantages of this industry, then it, it turned into an industry where, yeah, unit volume is not really growing. Um, it turns out if you back out coal, then unit volumes look a little bit better. And coal used to be a huge fraction of railroad um, traffic. And now it's a much smaller fraction, slowly, slowly reaching zero. So they ended up um, actually being a, a decent business, but it's also a business where um, the U.S., like, we have about as much railroad infrastructure, um, at least on the freight side, as we could ever really need. Like we um, apparently have some of the best freight railroad infrastructure in the world, in part because we had these gigantic railroad bubbles and a huge fraction of U.S. track miles went to bankruptcy in multiple crises in the late 19th century. So like we really, we really overdid it. But once you have actually carved this path through the mountains and once you have laid down the seal and built the stations and things, the the marginal cost of continuing to use those assets goes down and as countries get richer they tend to impose more land use restrictions for better or for worse but um, we're probably just not going to build more railroads there's probably some kind of endangered snail somewhere between point a and point b such that you can't build a new railroad so the bnsf railroad that has a slightly circuitous route but is still cheaper than driving a truck directly that ends up being the one you use and bnsf knows that they set prices accordingly and um, they they're able to continue to capture more revenue. So like those those kinds of companies, you don't actually want them growing forever because they've they've met the need they were set they set out to meet. But um, if you can ensure that those companies are as valuable as they can be and that they they continue to um, have good economics, then you're basically creating this um, this bounty program for building building future companies that will have similar economics for railroads. I actually wrote a piece, um, I think earlier this year, maybe last year, about railroads and how their economics are so similar to things like AWS, that it's uh, like, it is basically this, like whatever you are doing that involves physical stuff that has to move around the United States, like you probably at some point end up paying railroads some like basically like a royalty on your business and they do make your business cheaper, more cost-effective, more reliable, et cetera. And so the more manufacturing there is, the more, the more reshoring there is, then the more, more railroad traffic there is and the incremental margins on that are super high. So it is kind of like um, the more, just the more stuff you do online, the more servers Amazon needs to buy, they can run them more cheaply than you can. So um, even though you are somewhat locked in, even though you wish it were cheaper, even though you wish that they didn't fiddle with the pricing in order to make it as exploitative as possible, um, it's still better to have it than not. Yeah. I um, You, you wrote a, a post about the half-life of strategies, which I want to get into in a minute. But first, I want to do a thought experiment of, let, let's say Buffett and Munger were 70 years younger uh, and they were just coming of age now, you know, as, uh, as, as investors, um, you know, they were in their thirties in, in 2023. Um, how do you think their career might look different in terms of what they would choose to do given what the, the chessboard looks like today, knowing their personalities, 
um, and instincts? That's a really tricky question because to answer that, you have to figure out what is as weird and unpopular as investing in the stock market is today. And, you know, in terms of what what kind of scans weird and sort of scammy, like the thing that I think culturally fits the best is actually doing like weird crypto arbitrages or something. And um, I think we both hate hate that as an argument. I don't think it's literally true, but um, it is true that Buffett, um, he in I think early fifties made money in uranium penny stocks because apparently like the uranium market went through this crazy hype cycle where everyone thought the U.S. was going full nuclear as soon as possible. A bunch of people took scammy companies public, but some of the companies actually had real assets. They were actually viable businesses, and apparently Buffett cleaned up on that. And um, the biographies are kind of unclear on exactly what side of what trade he was taking, but um, he does refer to it as like shooting fish in a barrel. But says that even even when he was running six figures in the 1950s, these were too small for him to buy in the funds. So he was doing this with his personal money. So um, I think I think it would probably be just assets, asset classes you haven't heard of and things you didn't realize people could buy and sell and um, that they would, they would just be seen as probably not hustlers. I don't think they'd be spending a lot of time um, on Twitter or on, on TikTok or anything. But... They would be just surprisingly well-off people who were trading, you know, were involved in some business you did not realize was a real business. Um, and I think for for someone like Munger, it's possible that it would be real estate just in some different market for a while. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. I think probably the actual the actual kind of depressing answer is that they they would potentially be doing similar things, but. Um, making lower returns, but also they would have been able to raise a lot more money. So if you had someone who had a Buffett-like track record as a long-only or long-mostly stock picker who was adding similar amounts of alpha in in the 90s or 2000s or 2010s, like they, they'd be able to scale up their fund extremely fast. There's a whole infrastructure for finding these people and then for jamming as much capital as possible into their funds. So... Um, I think that that part of the story would have happened a lot faster. And then the part of the story where he takes over a company and turns it into a holding company, I think that that part is just so contingent that you can tell a bunch of wildly different stories. Like there are all sorts of weird hypotheticals. And um, it gets really like if you look at what happened with Berkshire was basically Buffett took control of Berkshire Hathaway um, because he was mad that the chairman had said that he would do a tender offer at one price and then did a tender offer at like literally 1% less than that price. And Buffett felt like he'd been just cheated. Um, of course, in modern terms, if the C- if the chairman of a company tells you we're doing a tender in a couple months and here's the price and you trade on that, that's uh, that's that's uh, not allowed. Um, so it is it, it already starts with a totally different context. Like a CEO can wrong you, but um, not in not in quite that way, and often in a more plausibly deniable way. Like they say, trends are looking good, and then the stock reports bad earnings. Like they managers do that all the time, but they they're actually like they can't tell you, hey, trends are actually way worse than we thought last time we talked to investors. So don't tell anyone; just short us. Um, they can't do that either. So um, if you're looking in a very different context, but. Buckfoot ended up tying up a ton of capital in Berkshire Hathaway. It didn't do very well. And then they had this brief blip where the textile cycle turned. They were able to buy an insurance company. And that insurance company is really the, the kernel, like the thing that the rest of the business grew out of. 
So if you imagine an alternate version of that story where you don't have the part where he locks up a bunch of capital in a random textile company because he's mad at the chairman and wants to fire him, and instead the story is just he eventually bought an insurance company and that started to grow and compound, um, maybe you actually have an outcome where they're a lot richer. But I think part of part of what ha- what has changed on both sides is like the amount of capital available is way, way higher. And the market in matching capital to investing talent is much, much more efficient. So even if someone is a random guy in Omaha who has to visit New York to raise money periodically, um, he probably ends up raising a lot more money a lot faster. But the kinds of opportunities that he was able to exploit are much, much smaller, much, much more fleeting. So you probably end up with a, a track record that's like, this is a pretty decent hedge fund. It's it's getting surprisingly good results given its size, but it's not it's not, you know, doing 30% annualized with no down years and beating the market by like 20 points the way that Buffett did in the 50s and 60s. That makes sense. Are there certain sort of market periods or time periods where they, they would have done much better or, or or worse? Or do you think they're the type of people who would thrive in any, uh, in any environment? And we'll use that as a segue to your uh, half-life uh, strategies post. Yeah, I think the post... Like you can view the 1950s as a very extended post-crisis environment, and um, the crisis in this case was bad enough that no talent went into finance for a couple decades. So everyone who was in the industry is much older than the than like new entrants in the industry. They're much more cautious. They all remember 1929. The young people don't. Um, one of his um, TMI moments, Buffett says that one of the responses people had to the the crash was just they stopped answering their phones. And then he says, by the way, I was born exactly nine months after the market crash in 1929. Um, <laughs> I guess it's good to know. But um, I think the like there are definitely post-crisis periods you can look at. So a time like 2002, and actually Buffett was pretty active in things like high-yield bonds in the early 2000s um, and had some good bargains there. But there were a lot more small companies that were trading under liquidation value where you could buy out the company and either cut a bunch of overhead and try to run it as a small profitable business or just um you know company companies market value is 30 million cash on hand is 80 you buy it for 50 and that you have the cash you get the company for free um stuff like that i think would have would have helped them compound a lot of money on a small capital base in times like that and then um post post great financial crisis there were just a lot of pricing dislocations in complicated structured products. Um, you know, a lot of money was made shorting these things um, in the good times, but there was also a lot of money made buying them um, because they were just crazy cheap during the bad times. And I think one thing that does stand out about the the Buffett Munger ethos is that they they keep a lot more liquid capital around than you would think was necessary considering the size of their business. Like the cash drag from Berkshire Hathaway is is enormous. And one of the reasons for that is they don't want to be trying to figure out how they will fund trades when there are opportunities to make really good trades. So um, at a time like 2009, um, the valuations were crazy, but nobody who was involved in structured products or any of those things, um, nobody had the cash to actually take advantage of them. And so someone who was getting worried about the market overheating and keeping a lot of their assets in cash would have had just a field day in in that time period buying like you know, if they were if they were into reading through a giant prospectus and trying to figure out what the actual payout function for this is, um, they would have had a great time buying those assets. So, I think I think stuff like that. Um, you know, you can't matter. You can't pattern match it perfectly because equities were closer to being an esoteric asset class because we really didn't have the idea of an asset class. But um, stock market was just deeply unpopular um, in the late '40s, early '50s. I think there was a 
the survey, there's this book called Dangerous Dreamers that claims that there was a survey of Americans asking them about their attitudes towards the stock market. And one of the common added, one of the common answers to the survey was some indication that the people being asked thought the stock market was where you would bring steers to sell them to slaughterhouses. So like the market was very much not on people's radar for a long time and then got on that radar and it's um it hasn't really lost its cultural salience. So the 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 really extreme valuation moves just don't happen in the same way. Like they're very transient, very driven by by leverage or by crisis and it's a lot harder to buy buy a ton of stock when there's like this instantaneous crash and it really feels like the world is is ending. Like this was how people felt, you know, March of 2020, like things are really bad. The whole system might collapse. It's also how people felt in late 2008. Like um, the people who were actually going to the ATMs and pulling out as much cash as they could were not just random people who saw something weird on cable television. It was like actual investment bankers who had been making seven figures up to that point who were worried that um, some Monday morning they'd go to the ATM and just get an error message because the world's financial system had shut down. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. One thing you write in the post that I thought was interesting was that looking back at historical uh, investors, you see that they're what you describe basically quants without calculators. Um, I, they, they, uh, why don't you give give some examples? Yeah, so there's this genre of papers in quant finance where you look at a famous investor's historical returns, and you're either looking at the overall returns or ideally looking at the asset level returns. You run a bunch of regressions on things that you know have historically made money, and then you look at how much of their returns can be explained by these known factors. So for someone like George Soros, you you have things like he was um, he was trend followed within asset classes. So when bonds were doing well, he bought more bonds. And then trend following within them, like the bonds that are doing better, he buys more of and doing that within currencies and so on. And if you run all of these regressions and just look at all the systematic signals that worked during his tenure, and then you um, you calculate the slope of the line, so how much value did he add? It's actually negative. So like if you programmed a Soros bot and you had to compete with Soros, it would have actually outperformed him, at least according to the back tests. And um, for Buffett, he does actually add value compared to the strategies, but the strategies are really simple things like buy companies that are conservatively financed and have high margins and have steady earnings growth or buy stuff that is statistically somewhat cheap. Um, and the so one view of that is these people are not actually all that skilled. They just found a pattern and pattern matched it. But there's, there's actually a lot of skill required in doing that pattern matching. Um, it's just really easy to underestimate how how data impoverished the average investor was and like every time i look into this i'm more surprised so as recently as the 1980s early 1980s the new york times was writing about the sec reading room so if you wanted to look up something like the latest 10q for a company you would actually go to the sec office and this is one reason that buffett was visiting new york a lot early in his career was like there would be a financial document he wanted to read. So he would actually have to go to the SEC and read it in their office because they had the 10K that this company had filed. Um, now companies distribute them, but wasn't always the case. Um, companies also um, in the 50s, I think the, I was looking at this recently, the SEC required them to do annual financials, but the quarterly financials were optional. And so, and the annual financials were due like 45 days after the end of the year. So, in theory, if it's like January, if it's like February 15th of 1951, you have financials um, for 1949 
And that's the most recent data you have. So the idea is that you'd be investing with up to a 13-month lag on knowing what the earnings were is just crazy. It also tells you, like, that's why dividends were so important to investors at that time. It's like, you don't actually know how much money the company is making. The financial statements are not necessarily all that clear. So um, the thing that you trust is you got a check in the mail and the check didn't bounce when you deposited it. Um, So actually, and then... Actually trying to collect numbers on pricing, um, it's a lot easier, especially for thinly traded stocks, to see, okay, where did this actually trade recently? Like, what is the bid? What is the ask? That's that's electronic now, but when Buffett was starting out, um, there were New York Stock Exchange listed stocks, so you, and there were other exchanges, so you could actually call up a specialist, and you know, if you want to know where GE is trading, you, you know, like, you wouldn't actually call the specialist. You'd call your broker, your broker calls the specialist, they make the trade, but if it's some obscure, um, I don't know, farm equipment company that has a stock traded over the counter, you have to figure out who are the market makers involved in this. You talk to all of them. You can negotiate with them. There are actually bits uh, in the book, The Snowball, it talks about Buffett actually haggling with people um, when doing trades and just consistent, like every time they call him back and say, okay, you can have it at four and a half, he'd be like, well, no, I can only do four and three eighths. And then they call him back and say, you can do the trade at four and three eighths. He's like, "Eh, maybe four and a quarter is better. And um, he was able to do that, which doesn't doesn't add a ton of value, but it really adds up over time. Um, but it also means that you can't actually do something like with 1950s, 1960s technology, you can't just do a screen of what are all of the companies that have been profitable for the last five years and trade below book value. Like this is something where you tell an analyst to get you that answer. And then three months later, they come back with the answer. Um, this was also before electronic calculators were widely distributed. And so if you were running numbers, you were literally turning a hand crank on a mechanical calculator on your desk, um, which just makes it really hard to do things like ask yourself, hey, if I if I assume that margins are one point higher starting three years from now, what does that do to my net present value? Like, you should probably just roughly estimate it in your head. You shouldn't actually calculate the numbers. But now it's it's totally trivial to come up with a statistical distribution that you think represents a company's revenue growth and earnings growth, and then crank through like 10,000 simulations of what does this do for the final value of the company? And then um, you can look at all the options that are trading and say, okay, if I think the value is X and here are my various constraints, I can find the exactly optimal way to express this trade. All that stuff has gotten really, really easy. And um, at the time that that someone like Buffett was operating, it was really hard. Um, Similarly with Soros, Currency trading was uh, kind of a new idea. Like people did it in this ad hoc sense of you're going to Paris, you're going to buy francs. Um, companies would do it in the sense of they earn money in different places, so they're translating that money into different currencies. But um, prior to prior to the the end of um, convertibility between the dollar and gold, and prior to the dollar, like everything depegging from the dollar. Um, there weren't really that many currencies you could actually actively trade. And lots of countries had restrictions on flows of capital. So um, in in theory, maybe you could find the, the small set of currencies that would actually trade and you could come up with some kind of statistical estimates of how they would trade and things. But in practice, you had to do it somewhat by analysis and somewhat by instinct. And then in retrospect, it turns out that a lot of that analysis was pattern matching to a small set of patterns. But um, you wouldn't necessarily know that at the time. And even if you did, being the first person to notice a pattern, even if it's a universal pattern, is uh, is a really big deal. And that was part of the thrust of my post was like, the bigger a deal the thing you observe is, the more likely it is to be, at least at this point, like recognized, acted upon, commoditized, the advantage goes away. 
And you do get the nice benefit of you bought before people understood that this is the thing to buy and they all bought it after you and then you can sell it to them. But now there's nothing left to buy because you bought, you know, of the, I don't know, of the like hundred great companies that were publicly traded, you bought the five that were cheapest and then everyone's bidding up all of them. And so you sell those five because they're now fully valued. You look at the set of high quality public companies and you're like, every one of these companies is either priced very expensively because investors treat it as sort of like a bond that also produces real returns above inflation, or it's priced cheaply, but it's because there's some existential risk. So um, the, the Berkshire Hathaway has off and on owned large amounts of um, a company that does dialysis. And that's just, it is a business where they can grow, they have pricing power, they literally keep people alive. And there's always this existential risk of what if someone comes up with something that is just significantly better than dialysis? Or what if um, their pricing has just gotten too aggressive and they get slapped with some giant fine or something? Like, you're when you buy stocks like that, you're now underwriting these big existential risks. And so it gets a lot harder to get really excited about buying high quality companies, at least high quality, publicly traded, very visible companies. Like they're all they're all priced pretty appropriately given their quality. And then um, if they look cheap, sometimes it is because there's some big risk that you you should be aware of that will at some point uh, really, really get you. And that actually has happened to Berkshire Hathaway. Like they were um, big investors in Kraft Heinz and Kraft Heinz um, was like the classic Buffett slash Munger, high quality company who wants to buy the second best macaroni and cheese, you know, it's, especially with, with food you feed to kids. Like you you can't afford to change any microscopic element of the flavor or they'll tell you it's disgusting you refuse to eat dinner um so it those were pretty defensible businesses but a lot of the growth model was increasingly cutting costs and bullying suppliers and bullying customers and um, eventually those customers just kind of lost their patience and started pushing back and um Kraft Heinz has had a long period of not uh, not producing very good returns because that model really reached its limit you end the post by talking about how the um, the half life is is getting even shorter in the sense that uh, anything that people are doing that is particularly working will be copied in an ETF, um, you know, pretty soon. So that they'll have to, um, you know, anyone who's generationally great will have to be doing something else. H- how many investors, or how often is it that investors are kind of one hit wonders in the sense of they try one strategy, they get really like, you know, or they they figure out that it works, l- luck or sk- and skill. And then they just keep, you know, deploying that strategy versus, hey, that strategy becomes relevant. Now they have to, or that strategy becomes commoditized. And now they have to figure out something totally new and are able to repeatedly do it. I think the investors who are literally one hit wonders, you almost never hear about because they haven't actually, they aren't managing that much capital. So, I mean, you might hear about it from a friend if you have a friend who made one really amazing investment or found one amazing way to make money in the market and it worked for a while and then stopped working you know they're they're happy they made money and then they're annoyed that it no longer works um but usually the people who seem like one hit wonders they actually had an above average track record before and that's what gave them enough assets under management they could make their one big trade that was like their career making trade so someone like john paulson like if you look at his historical track record before the big short he was he was doing good numbers, like not not incredible numbers, but he was running a really solid low risk strategy that um, that worked really well, and um, that he had he managed to specialize in. And it turned out to be it turned out to have some nice synergies with thinking about the mortgage business because if you're like his strategy was um, 
risk arbitrage, special situations. So looking at um, rumored or announced merger deals and trying to figure out what are the odds that this goes through, what's the timing. And then um, a big concern with that kind of strategy is how do you structure a portfolio such that you get the kinds of returns that investors want and you aren't taking undue risk. So if you have a bunch of live deals, you might say that there's um, there's one particular deal where you don't think it's an amazing idea to short it. Like you don't think it's a layup that this deal just does not get approved, but you do think that if something bad happens to the market in general, all of the stocks you own are going to drop at once. And so you might find something you can short against that exposure that, that makes it a little bit better. And you do have to think about like, what's the optimal leverage? What goes wrong if you are over levered? Or what goes wrong if you're using a responsible amount of leverage, but a non-zero amount, and one of your competitors is wildly over levered and has to liquidate everything all at once? Um, can, you, can your portfolio survive that? And those are all... Um, Really good questions for thinking about things like what is the structure of the the um, mortgage-backed securities market? Like what is actually going to happen as as people start defaulting, and what do investors do in response to that? And just where does the money flow? Like who's obligated to do what when, and what what are those long-term effects? Um, I also think that he. Paulson was, um, since he was not someone who spent a lot of time in the mortgage market, he basically wanted to build up his understanding from the ground up and wanted to figure out like what is fundamentally going on with mortgages. Like why do they have the return profile they do? What is the value of housing? How is it performed as an investment? Um, they actually did some of the early finance big data projects. Like they, they had to find a company that could have a database big enough to have all the mortgage records for all the houses that they, that or like all the mortgage records for all the mortgages that were included in all of the subprime backed, um, through it or uh, subprime backed securities that they were betting against. So they could find the right ones to bet against. And that with, um, mid two thousands, it was actually a non-trivial task. Like there were definitely people who could do it, but would the average hedge fund manager know how to find them? Not necessarily. So um, we're kind of coming at it with this attitude of, we know how to make money, we know how to think about risk, but we actually don't know what's going on in this market. They were able to apply the, the beginner's mind to the investment thesis, and then the professional's mind to the expression of that thesis with the right products. So even though they looked kind of one hit wondery in the sense of no one outside of finance had heard of John Paulson, and suddenly everyone had heard of John Paulson, um, it was really, it was one of those things where it's like one hit that took 25 years to make. And um, then, you know, um, I, I think... The, the follow-up was was not as impressive, but you don't need a super impressive follow-up after something like that. So um, I do think that the there are definitely investors who've had to change their styles. And um, so Buffett is like the classic example of that, where um, early 1950s, he's buying companies at less than cash on hand or buying really amazing growth companies at five times earnings and then flipping them at eight times earnings because there's something even cheaper he's found. And he did have to adjust to what can we put billions of dollars into that will grow at a satisfactory rate. And if you're if you're also like, you know, a lot of the story with Buffett is asset selection, but another big part of the story is liability selection, specifically that insurance is a really good way to get captive capital you can keep for a long time. And if you're good at um, underwriting insurance. And if you're good at touching the reinsurance deals no one else wants to touch, then you can actually get a negative cost of capital for, for those investments. And a negative cost of capital, cash drag is not such a big problem. So um, you can you can sort of view that as multiple acts. It's not just the value to growth pivot. It's also the um, 
the simple capital structure to complicated capital structure and sort of arbitraging the cost of capital in one area against the returns on capital in another area to to maximize profits from both. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of the great hedge funds, um, actually, if you you can um, you can go back and read. Um, there's a site valueinvestorsclub.com, which I really love. It's just people pitching value stocks, and they're often pitching these classic. It's trading below liquidation value kinds of companies. Um, you can actually find their blog posts that try to de-anonymize people who were posting on Value Investors Club when they were junior analysts at obscure companies, and then they became famous. And you can look at what they were pitching versus what they do now. And um, a fair number of them, what they do now is big quality growth companies, often in tech, that have these network effects and these really long growth runways, and they're very heavy on R&D spending, and they're just changing the way we live. And then you look at what they were doing when they started their career, and it's stuff like this um, This chicken company looks like margins are going to expand and it's um, trading at a low PE, or like this company is rolling up doctor's offices, but the, the numbers don't make sense. Like, why would a doctor who's making X amount of money sell for 3X and um, give up all that upside? Clearly, something's wrong with the accounting, so we're short. Um, so they often start doing the stuff that doesn't scale super well, and then they move on to the stuff that does. And a lot of, um, as we discussed on the, the recent episode, a lot of the big multi-manager hedge funds, they start out as one person or a couple of people just day trading, and they learn some asset extremely well. They know all the little quirks of the market, and then they start trying to expand that model, not just expanding laterally to here's the next asset class, but also expanding temporally to hey, if we are really, really good at knowing what a company does from 9.30 when the market opens to 4 p.m. when it closes, do we have no edge knowing what it's going to do tomorrow? And if we're pretty good at tomorrow, well, there are a lot of tomorrows ahead of that. And um, maybe maybe we don't want to be just constantly day trading if we know this is a great company. Like, Why don't we figure out how we can actually make the longer-term bets and capture all of that upside in addition to just the, the upside from liquidity provision? So yeah, a lot of people... They have to they have to change the game they're playing. I actually wrote a piece a long time ago about um, about games and metagames and how um, a surprising number of very successful entrepreneurs and investment managers started out in some kind of gaming um, or they 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 were really obsessed with some kind of video game or some kind of low stakes game earlier in their lives. The most recent example I've seen is uh, Jensen at uh, Nvidia, where he was a nationally ranked table tennis player. And what I thought was interesting about that was that um, you ask ChatGPT to rank sports by how indexed success is to reaction time. It puts table tennis at number one without being prompted or cued or anything. And then um, reaction time actually correlates pretty well with IQ. And being successful in sports will correlate well with conscientiousness. So if you have this package of someone is competitive and they're willing to show up at practice, and they have these physical skills that correlate with mental skills that are just really hard to replicate elsewhere, then that's going to be very predictive of success generally. But then you have this question of, um, how do you get Jensen to stop playing table tennis and start studying electrical engineering instead? And so what I think separates people who have these good technical skills and have the baseline requirements, what separates them from the people who really, really succeed is... Um, the ability to think about what game are you playing, but also what is the metagame you're playing? Like, are you playing table tennis to be really, really good at table tennis? Or are you playing table tennis because you think that having good academics plus excelling in a weird sport gets you into a better school than otherwise? And uh, if so, you play your heart out. And then as soon as you get the acceptance letter, you never touch the paddle again. 
I have a friend who did this a while ago where he ran he ran the numbers on his GPA and test scores versus um, what the cutoff was for various schools, realized um, it would, he would have a shot if he were an athlete, but he wasn't an athlete. So then he looked at, okay, what are the sports that the Ivy Leagues play that the average high school does not have the equipment for? So he became a rower. And rowing is um, it's a sport where like if you if you are the right height and build, um, it is really just a question of how much misery do you want to put in? And that is roughly how much speed you will get out. So if you put in a lot of misery um, and you're sort of prepaying on the misery of not getting into the school you wanted, um, you put in a lot of misery, you get you get the placement you want. And then um, you do just the least amount of it that you can get away with doing and focus on other stuff. So I think I think doing that, like always asking yourself, what is the meta game that I'm playing, is a really useful exercise. You can definitely get way too wrapped up in the meta game, but if you're good at a game, like you have some kind of technical, like you have some skills that are very specific to that that, and then you have some skills that are generalizable. And asking what is the best way to get a return on those generalizable skills will often mean finding something that is higher value, maybe more uncertain, but higher value than what you're doing. Yeah, it's um. It's really interesting. Uh, Daniel Gross and Tyler Cowan in their book, Talent, uh, said that what they look for in um, in promising talent is people who are pick, uh, climbing the right ladders or the right hierarchies because school often incentivizes the the wrong hierarchies, the default hierarchies. So that that relates to what you're saying in terms of the metagame. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I've spent an exceptional uh, amount of time in my life uh, playing basketball and uh freestyle rapping and that's why i'm not uh building nvidia or open ai but uh but uh it's uh you know yeah exactly (laughs) like it's always time the i want to segue to another piece you um you wrote about this this week or another idea which is uh ai's impact on media uh why don't you uh unpack your your perspective there yeah, so I was looking at uh, a couple recent stories. So Sports Illustrated had some AI-generated content by AI-generated authors with fake biographies, fake headshots, etc. Um, and then um, who else? Well, they were there. There have been a couple other sites that have gotten caught using AI-generated content, and in some cases they get caught because the content is actually a previous generation of AI. Like um, this happened with BuzzFeed earlier this year. They said, hey, we're adopting ChatGPT, and the stock, I think, tripled and then immediately went back down. And um, then someone found some article from BuzzFeed that was talking about destination, vacation destinations and the 43 places in the U.S. you have to visit. And they said it had to be AI-generated because it referred to every single place as a hidden gem. But actually, if you've used LLMs very much, you know that they don't do that. They don't actually repeat themselves. In fact, the weird stuff is when they say something totally random. Um, text spinners, which are an earlier generation of create quasi-unique content, those do repeat themselves. So text spinner is, um, it's basically turning an existing article into a Mad Lib and then reposting it so that it's original content. And you do that a bunch of times and all of your texts on articles link to the same destination site and Google sees, hey, lots of links to the site. Um, that worked in the mid-2000s, doesn't work so well today, but there's there are a lot of legacy tools out there that just produce garbage content. But for some categories of content, you just don't need very high production values. Um, so like the the article that Sports Illustrated got outed as having been uh, written by AI, it was something they bought from a third-party company, and third-party companies said they don't use AI, they clearly do, and it was um, reviews of volleyballs. And it's like, I mean, if you're using ChatGPT to help you with the code... It's like a 30-minute project to scrape Amazon's volleyball listings, pull in some product descriptions from customer reviews, 
pipe those into chat GPT and then, or, you know, pipe those into GPT-4, or you don't even really need 4, you could do 3.5. Um, and then you get out some some stuff that is natural language and it's just summarizing stuff on the page. Um, you, oh, the other the other AI story was um, that someone had done the, uh, he called it an SEO heist. So looked at a competitor site, looked at the site map, so listing of all the pages on their site, converted every URL, because the URLs were very SEO optimized, and they had all the words that the article was about in the URL. So you can convert those into a headline. That's trivial. Um, I did that with ChatGPT just to check it. It produced exactly the kind of headline I was expecting. And then you um, do another call to the the OpenAI APIs, and you generate an article on that topic. So they were able to puke out thousands and thousands of articles on long tail topics, and then um, apparently they they left enough information in that Twitter thread that Google was able to identify the site and immediately penalize it. But um, what what both of these show is that our our relationship to media is changing because it used to be that if you if you read like if you saw that there existed a 10,000 word essay making some particular argument, you didn't have to think it was right. You did, however, have to think somebody really, really cares about getting the answer to this. And they they went to great lengths to produce something. It may be something terrible. It may be that they completely wasted their time, but they tried. And that that gives you some kind of signal about the value of the information. But now it gives you no signal whatsoever. It means either someone worked really hard on this or someone spent like $2 on an AI API and just automatically generated it. The other thing that it changes though, is that a lot of professions have this career path where you start out doing really boring stuff that just has to be done to some acceptable level of mediocrity, but you have the occasional opportunity to really prove yourself. So journalism, like people used to go like get a degree in journalism or in English or something, they get a job at whatever paper will hire them. They're reporting on city council meetings. They're writing obituaries. They're doing really boring stuff. And then something actually happens that is interesting and they're able to write about it. And when they write about something that matters, they're able to show that they can they can get the story, they can tell the story well, and then that sets them on a path to later success. But if we don't actually need the uh, like if you can get the acceptable level of mediocrity without any human input, then it's hard to think of what the entry level jobs will be. So, um, and I've noticed this like in media, I think more people have to LARP as established media figures right from the beginning. And this is more or less what I did. Like, um, I didn't have a bunch of bylines from you know the initially like a local newspaper that has a, a business reporter, and then a national newspaper as a finance reporter, and then I do my own thing on Substack. It was uh, I just had to start writing and um, just sort of write in the tone of, I know roughly what I'm talking about and here are my sources and here's why I might be wrong, et cetera. Um, so I think more people sort of act as if they're mid-career to late career from the very beginning of their career. And that creates a different kind of complicated media environment because you you have um, less ability to judge someone's credibility based on tone. And these are all really superficial things like judging based on word count, judging based on tone. Um, not not what you should do if you actually have time to read the substance, but we also live in a world of um, not information abundance necessarily, but content abundance surely. So we do have to triage. We, you know, we all have our Twitter feeds. Many of us have RSS readers and so on. We get our email alerts and all this other stuff. And so we we have these thousands of bids for our attention. We have to decide what's credible and what's not. And the the ability to signal that well has gotten weaker. It's a more adversarial environment because um, if 
if the content is cheap, the headlines, the good headlines become a bigger factor in getting someone to click and getting the traffic. So there's actually more selection for somewhat dishonest headlines. So you sort of have to read like, and I, I've used this line a lot. Um, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, but you, if you read an interesting headline and you're about to click, you should pause for a moment and ask yourself, what is the most boring sense in which this headline could be literally true? And if something comes to mind pretty readily, or if you think of a couple hypotheses and then you're reading the article and you realize, hey, I can tell what's actually going on. It's just not very interesting. Then um, then you can close the tab and move on. But you kind of have to do that because um, it's it's getting harder to judge content based on these superficial things. And I guess uh, the the ironic paradox of that would be that this this rise of AI-generated content probably means that you actually you spend more of your time reading um, to get the same level of information because the the cost of producing mediocre content that can superficially pass for good content has gotten so low. And then there's that's probably not a steady state. So there's probably some state of the world in which the AI filters get really good at showing you the stuff you'll actually care about. And a lot of people are trying to do this at different levels. You know, Gmail is do that with your priority inbox and um, or your yeah your important inbox or whatever. Um, RSS readers are trying to summarize things. The, the newspapers themselves, like the online media outlets themselves, they are trying to give you a headline and then a couple central bullet points so that you know whether or not to read the full content. So um, people are competing to do this in ways automated and not. Um, I'm doing this with a newsletter, so I now have a summarizing tool and lead each issue with a quick summary of what each piece of content is about because I think the the burden on people's time just keeps going up. And so the more things you can do to address that and make sure that when someone is reading your stuff, that they are actually getting the maximum value for their time, the better off you'll be. And um, the standards will keep ratcheting up. So um, I think uh, there's like, you know, eventually, eventually there, there may be this case where you have like a, you have this niche industry of handcrafted, you know, human made content, but a lot more content is, um, mass produced and the supply chain does involve human input it does involve human creativity but there's uh there's a lot more machine driven translation and transformation in the meantime and that is um that is a more winner-take-all world but it's also probably a world where um, the people who can write good prose and write good code do an order of magnitude better than people who are really good at one or the other and are in this same media business that's a good overview if you have five minutes, I was going to ask you about Argentina. Yeah, I, I, I do have to wrap, unfortunately. But let, let's wrap this one and we'll do it, uh, we'll do it next, uh, next time. Bern, uh, as always, thanks for a great episode. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe. Give us five stars. And check out Bern's excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 